be back with you. Um, and uh, I, I kind of get to, I, you know, catch up a little bit on, on the sermons that I had planned and reschedule everything. But we were already doing this quasi-series uh, through the end of the year where we talk about the di- just different stories about Jesus and look at them in a different way. Um, not reading them with the understanding and the foresight of how it's going to end because we've heard all these stories so often. We know uh, how they end, and we tend to rush through the story really quickly to get to the end, to the miracle or to the parable or to uh, the great climax, and we miss out sometimes on really understanding who Jesus was and how he taught and how he influenced the world around him. And to better understand him, we have to read these stories in a bit of a different light sometimes. And so that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do as we close out 2021, is get to know Jesus a little bit better. And we've looked at several stories to do that. And I hope that uh, as you read in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, and I encourage you to read the Gospels as much as possible. Um, they, They really are the foundation and the essence of all of Scripture, everything emanates from the gospel story. But as you do that, you'll notice themes, and you should, and it's good to pick up on those things. And um, I think one of the great themes of Jesus' ministry is reaching out and bringing in the people on the outside, reaching out and bringing in the people who are on the margin of society, who are ostracized for one reason or another, whether it be for ethnicity whether it be because of gender, whether it be because of sin, whatever it is, Jesus is very good at opening that door and reaching out as an example to us. We'll be in Mark chapter 5 this morning, looking at a couple of stories that kind of come on top of each other. And when when they do that, we we want to look for some things things that thematically uh, stand out to us. These stories are told in various places in Scripture, so we do have multiple sources for it. And some of them treat some of the things a little bit differently, which is kind of interesting. So we'll look at that in a moment. But let's begin in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. Now, this is, this is something that's happening a lot as Jesus travels around. Big crowds tend to gather around him. And when they gather around him, <coughs> excuse me, uh, he... Sometimes Jesus likes to withdraw. Sometimes he likes to go off by himself and spend some alone time and recharge a little bit. But Jesus is, is seeing this crowd and now dealing with, with this big crowd. And so he stays there by the sea. He stays by the water. In verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Okay, I grew up um, an only child for 10 glorious, wonderful years, and my parents in their foolishness thought that I apparently wasn't enough, so they had another child. Um, Silly, I know, but uh, I never grew up in a household with like a sister. I mean, I had my mom, but, but for all the time I lived at home, she was the only female in our household. My dad never had any sisters. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, only had one sister out of six kids that were um, in that family. We didn't have a lot of experience with girls. And I don't mean just our dating life. I mean growing up around them. 
And um, I didn't have the first one either. But I, I, our first child was a girl. And, and around the same time, by the way, my parents had their first daughter. So uh, dad and I, despite being 26 years apart, are experiencing many of the same milestones and changes in our life at the same time. Uh, so we kind of call each other and compare notes about what it's like to raise a teenage daughter for the first time. But there is something very different, and we talk about this a lot, about your daughter. There's something very different. I look at my sons, and I, I, I hope that they grow up to be honorable. I hope they grow up to be kind, and compassionate, empathetic. I hope they grow up to be leaders. I hope that they grow up to be men. I have no problem celebrating that. When I look at my daughter, I hope she grows up to be a strong and, and independent and a, a woman of noble character. And I also think I need to buy more ammo. <laughs> I mean, that's, we think differently when we look at our daughters as fathers. And I think anyone that has a daughter can relate to that. When I read these stories in chapter 5, um, they touch me in a different way than some other Jesus stories because of the th that theme of daughters um, and how we look at our, at our daughters that we're raising. And so here this man, I can't imagine, by the way, um, what this man's going through. I can a little bit. Anna Kate has never been sick to the point of death, but she has been sick. When she was, I don't know, a week old, I mean, when we came home from the hospital, she was, she, she was, uh, Nikki was nursing her, and we did not know that Anna Kate, because she was born a few weeks early, uh, was struggling with reflux, which is, and if you've had babies, you know, sometimes they don't keep things down when they're supposed to keep it down. And so, uh, long story short, she tried to drown herself while she was eating. Lips turned blue, she passed out, she stopped breathing. We were new parents. Um, we didn't know what to do. Eventually, she kind of caught her breath. Color came back. Okay. That was weird. No big deal. And then it happened again. We went to see the doctor. They became concerned. They, um, but she also had jaundice. Some other, so she had some complicated things happening in the first few weeks of life. We were back in the hospital. And she was under that blue light. And if you ever had a kid with jaundice, you know about the Billy light. They put them under that light. They have her on the pulse ox thing so we can check, make sure she's breathing well. I'm trying to feed her, not drown her, but get her to get, you know, under the, the light. So that it, it, and I'm 20 years old. Um, and I had an accounting final that week. Like, I was still a kid. I was scared. Now, looking back, wasn't the most serious thing that a child can go through. But in that moment, I was terrified. That's as close as I've ever come to having the kind of worry or concern that I can imagine someone whose child is near death is experiencing. And so this man goes to Jesus because he's heard or seen or knows what Jesus can do. And in faith, he asks Jesus to please come and lay hands on her because he believes that she will get well and she will live. Verse 24, Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the difference in culture when it comes to 
Well, social distancing, which uh, we've been doing now for a while or talked about more. Um, we're actually really, really good at social distancing in, in America and in parts of the West. Because if you go to parts of Europe, they are not good at it. It is not a part of their culture. And Semitic cultures are very similar. There is, you don't own the space around your body. We kind of recognize that you do. We treat one another as though you have a, what we call it, a personal bubble. And we don't get too close to that personal bubble. That's, we're a distanced culture. Go to places like Italy, Germany, parts of Western Europe even, Africa. They do not recognize the ownership of personal space. So they get really close. And in this part of the world, in this time, everybody's pressing up against Jesus. It's a crowd. It's not like kind of a crowd. They're pressed together. Bodies are touching one another. People are rubbing up against one another. So this large crowd gathers because they're following Jesus because he's going off to this synagogue official's home. <clears throat> so everybody's pressing against him. And we have a second story that happens in the middle of this first story. A woman who, has had, a, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and ha had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. All right, let's stop there for a minute. <clears throat> Mark talks about this woman. And by the way, the hemorrhaging, um, it would have been an issue of bleeding, and it would have been specifically a female issue of bleeding, okay, if I'm making that clear enough. And I need to make that clear because that has implications for how she will be viewed by society. That has implications for how she is going to be treated um, by the people around her. We'll get back to that in a minute. Mark is very clear. Uh, she had suffered much at the hands of doctors. She had run out of money, and she was worse off. Uh, if you go to Luke and you read this story in Luke, uh, Luke was a physician. And it just says that she went to doctors, and they couldn't do anything for her. Uh, I like how Luke is a little bit more kind to his profession because there's, there's personal flavor to biblical writing. And so Luke doesn't bash the doctors quite as hard. Uh, as Mark is a little more realistic about it. She was taken advantage of by medical people. Um, and, you know, we have conversations and discussions and debates about those things even today, don't we? About the medical community, how, how you know, some people don't trust doctors, some people do trust doctors, insurance companies. I know, I see you over there. I trust doctors, especially your husband. It's okay. And, you know, insurance companies, um, I, it's not, I think that people that run insurance companies can go to heaven. They only get to stay three days. That's my deal. That's, I think, then they should go home. Um, but we still have mistrust and questions about medical things. And it was true even then. And here this woman was dealing with a chronic problem and apparently had gotten only worse and now was destitute and poor. So she's out here in this crowd. Verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Now, we don't know why she thought that. But she was desperate. She was out of options. There was no other medical option or economically feasible option for her to be treated for this problem. 
I don't know what the modern day equivalent of this problem would be. But we do know how this was handled in this culture and according to their law. And we do know what kind of problems would result from this. Now, first of all, uh, the old law, the, the, the Mosaic law, taught that women who were experiencing this, whether it be on the, the regular cycle or whether in a, a special circumstance like she was having, they were to leave from the community and separate. Um, they would go to a, a, a tent that was made just for them, and that's where they would stay until that time subsided. Now, we look at that and go, oh, my goodness, that's hor horrific and, and what a, a barbaric thing to do. Uh, it wasn't a punishment. If we see it that way, that's probably our own influence coloring that. It wasn't designed as a punishment. It was designed for a couple of reasons. One was hygiene and health to keep people healthy and to keep people who might be susceptible from becoming sick. It was also designed to be a break. In that tent, in that place, there was mutual empathy. There was caring for one another. There was a break from the cultural demands of running a household and for caring for a husband. It was an opportunity for rest and recovery. And it was a good thing. It was a good thing for their, their people in their time. But it did come with the moniker that during that period of time, you were unclean. You were not fit to be amongst the general population. And certainly this woman who was suffering in this way had no business touching Jesus. Women were not permitted to touch other men in public other than their husbands. And even in the privacy of their own home, in, in their culture, you weren't permitted to touch a man who wasn't your husband or your father. Outside of your immediate family, you weren't permitted to touch men as a woman. And here is this woman in this crowd being pressed upon, reaching out, and for whatever reason believes, if I can just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. Can you imagine how scared she must have been? Can you imagine how desperate her situation must have been? Verse 29 says, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Remember, the crowd is pressing in on one another. There are bodies rubbing up against each other, people bumping off of one another. And he turns around and everyone would stop. Jesus is about to speak, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him and go, ah, a crowd. Everyone touched you. Everyone is bumping up against you and touching you. And, um, and they say that to him, and why do you say who touched me? Verse 32, he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. All right, now, we talk about how these interactions sometimes are scandalous. Remember, Jesus was viewed as a rabbi and a teacher by those who followed him. He was considered holy. He was considered pure. And they had rules about people touching rabbis. You didn't do it. 
And there would be questions, particularly when it's a female. And some encounters that Jesus has are females who work in particular industries that are not wholesome. And here we have a woman who's clearly in an unclean state, according to their law, who is reaching out and touching him. And moreover, he is pointing out that she touched him. So what she's done is already scandalous and shameful. And what he's doing is just calling attention to it. And the people around him are like, what are you doing? Why are you calling this woman out? She's, she, she's done something wrong, and now you're calling attention to it, and she's got to be terrified. She was hoping to get in there and do what she thought was going to work and then, and then leave. But now attention's been called her. The whole crowd is noticing her. They're pressing in on her, and she's on the ground afraid. Because if I'm standing up here preaching... And some woman we've never met walks in the door and walks up here and starts hugging me. We're all going to have some questions. Okay? Jesus being touched by this woman in public and calling attention to it creates some scandalous kinds of questions. And it creates a question of why he would do that. Because by doing that, he is now caused himself to be seen as unclean. He has shown her as being unclean. And it's very likely that what awaits her is the officials of this town coming to her, questioning her, berating her, running her out of town, and then going to her husband and berating him and punishing him for her actions. That's what awaits for the attention being called to this. But then Jesus says something to her and uses a phrase that he almost never uses anywhere else in his ministry when talking to someone. The first word he says, daughter, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. He calls her daughter. This is an intimate kind of conversation. This is a gentle way of talking to someone. And he uses a phrase, go in peace. When we say the phrase, go in peace, what we mean is kind of like best of luck. Well, go in peace. Good luck. They meant something very different. When they said go in peace, when that phrase is invoked for them, go in peace meant you belong to me, you're mine, go with my protection. So when Jesus says go in peace, he's not just wishing her well, he's claiming her and claiming responsibility for her. Go in peace, go as one who belongs to me, go with my protection. Now, <clears throat> he, he calls her daughter, and by the way, this is happening while he's on the way to do what? Oh, yeah. He's going to heal someone's daughter. Do you see the theme? You see what's developing? And by the way, I want to also point this out, just because it's important sometimes that we break the, the image that we have. Um, Jesus was not the waif-like person that we sometimes see in the old flannel graph uh, or in the uh, Renaissance artwork. Um, 
he was, Scripture typically calls him or his father a carpenter, that they worked in carpentry. Um, most scholars today think we've probably figured out that meant more like stonemason. So it's very likely he worked in a stonemason environment growing up. So he would have been muscular. He would have been strong, probably would have had scars. Um, he's not a weakling, probably not terribly attractive by any standard. We know that Isaiah tells us that. But he's a strong guy, and he's there in the middle of the crowd, and they're pushing up against him. So we know he's a fairly stout guy, Jesus is. And um, it, it, it's very, well, we see times when in Scripture a mob is looking for Jesus to kill him. And they say, uh, you know, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, that's me. And they fall down trying to get away from him. You remember that? He, he wasn't. They, they thought that apparently they had seen the flannel graph too. They thought he was going to be holding a sheep and, you know. No, he, he, was, he was something different than what, we, than what we see when we think of Jesus. So... All of this is happening, but he's on his way somewhere. So he says um, to be, be healed, go in peace, be healed of your affliction. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Now I want to point out here, Jesus, and we're going to, evidence of this is coming at the end of this story. He was not the greatest showman, okay? He, we see that a lot in depictions of Jesus, that he would make these grand pronouncements. He's speaking to this man. He's probably speaking quietly, individually. He says, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. We think of it as Jesus would turn to the crowd and say, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. Uh, it was something a little more subdued. He wasn't there to get a lot of attention. He really wasn't. You'll see that in a minute. And in verse 37, he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Uh, he allowed no one. There's a big crowd. They're packed in there. They're pressing against each other. And Jesus is able to turn around and say, nope, the rest of you leave. He, he probably physically had some authority to turn and to say no. So again, not not the super meek and quiet person we think of, but he did not allow them. That's the way it's worded. He did not allow others to follow. He only took those with him that are named. So verse 38, they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, again, he comes in, he says, what's all, this, what's all this going on? She's just sleeping. They laugh, and then he put them out of the house. He didn't just, please leave. He put them out. He clears rooms. Jesus puts them out because he has work to do, and he doesn't necessarily want an audience for it. Jesus works quietly. Have you ever noticed that? God sometimes is what I call an 1159 God, right at the last minute. 
Sometimes he waits. And sometimes he does things quietly when no one else is looking. So he puts them all out. He took along the child's father and mother, first time we see her now, and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, and this is beautiful, Talitha, kum, speaking in the language, really, of his childhood. Which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he, look at this, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that, some, uh, that something should be given her to eat. How often does Jesus do something miraculous and he keeps it quiet or he tries to? Why did he send the crowd away? Why did he clear the house? Why did he tell even what, the five people that were there not to tell anyone about it? Jesus had a job to do. I would submit to you that his job was to come to this earth, to be nailed to a cross, to be sacrificed on our behalf, to defeat the one tool that Satan has, and that's death. And I would speculate to you that he knew that if he told everyone and let everyone see the miraculous things he was doing, they would never let him be crucified. It had a purpose. But the purpose was not to come and be a great healer and a great worker of miracles. The purpose was to be the sacrifice for us. And so he did things quietly. And he did things with gentleness. Sometimes he used force and strength. But in all things, he was working toward a goal of setting us free. Because he has compassion on the one who is shamed. He has empathy for those who are hurting calls them daughter and son. We used to sing, used to, I, mean, I don't remember the last time I sang it, but an old hymn, does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is, um, what's the lyric? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? This question is posed in that hymn. And the chorus comes back, this resounding chorus. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched by my grief. We have a savior, a high priest, who understands, who empathizes, who feels. That's important. That's important. Jesus knew what he was capable of. He knew what he was going to do, and yet... He shows this kindness and this gentleness and this empathy. Why did he call that woman out? Was it to embarrass her and to shame her further? Was it to strike fear in her and to intimidate her? No. It was so that he could call her daughter and claim her as his own. Why did he go to heal one child of one synagogue official? And why did he not bring anyone else along to show how powerful he was because he cares. 
because it's about his relationship with us as individuals. It's about his church that he died to purchase. It's about the love that leads everything he does. So many of these stories, Jesus bumps up against the, 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 the tradition and the culture and the law. And the question is posed, will you do it according to our law or will you do it a different way? And he always chooses the different way and love always trumps law when it comes to Christ. And if we see the rest of the story, the rest of scripture, the rest of our lives through Jesus, it changes how we understand all of it. Love trumps law. Does Jesus care? Absolutely. And there's no way to read these stories and not see that. He calls us sons and daughters. He extends his hand and he welcomes us with his protection and with his love. If you're in need of that love this morning, that protection or encouragement with, with us, then we offer you an opportunity to make that known. And we hope that you'll be enriched. And we hope that your walk will be easier as we walk it together as Jonathan comes and leads us.